Hello, Adam Greenfield here, host of the Great Communicators podcast series. And what you're about to hear is the full, unedited interview with one of the guests we spoke with. If you haven't listened to the fully produced episode yet, I definitely encourage you to do so before listening to this one. They're shorter in length and much more refined. You can find them all at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. The idea behind these longer, unedited conversations is to give you an opportunity to hear the entire talk, orts and all. This is not only a fun way to hear the full flow of the conversation, but it also emphasizes the importance of the points made in the shorter, produced episodes, which, again, can be found at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the conversation. Okay, so we'll go ahead and get started. We'll get some easy questions out of the way. Um, first, can you give us your name and occupation? My name is Bruni Felding, and I'm an associate professor at the Scripps Research Institute. I'm a principal investigator on cancer research projects. Do you go by doctor? Are you no. Doc- no, Dr. Felding? No. Now you can call me Bruni. Bruni? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. I, I ask because um, when I go create the script for the show, I want to yeah. find out, I want to make sure people's titles are correct. Yeah. So I want to know if I should call you Bruni. You can call Ms. me Bruni. Felding or doctor. Or, yeah. Okay. Bruni's fine. Okay. You, I don't know if you've noticed, I have a sign at my door that says Dr. Bruni. I didn't see that. I, I mean, yeah, never mind. But I was, I was given that once in a advocacy. You know, I was teaching like once a year. I teach here in a project that's called Project Lead, where people who are like breast cancer survivors want to become advocates for researchers like me. You know, and they and they get a crash course, a crash course, so to speak, on science because their backgrounds are very diverse. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I teach there. Um, for a week, like heavy duty, <laughs> you know, crash course type of thing. And they gave me this, this, uh, name tag that says Dr. Bruni. <laughs> you wear that with pride, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> I put it out my door. Yeah. I don't blame so, you. I don't blame <laughs> it's a good title to have. Yeah. My mom, my mom says there's two kinds of kids. One that grows up to be a lawyer and one that grows up to need a lawyer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so my mother got, my brother's a lawyer. So she got that half and she's like, oh, if, if only he'll be a doctor. I want to be a writer and an artist. I want to make it. I'm going to struggle. So, um, <laughs> but anyway, um, are there any areas of science and research communication that you feel need some work? Absolutely. <laughs> I guess um, any type of research communication is always a process. It's not a, st- a stagnant and fully, you know, developed. Um, faculty or, or uh, um, a trade it's and that's I think is the beauty in it also is that it evolves or uh, the different types of communications evolve with the need that we see in them you know and the needs that are being brought to our attention through the type of audiences that we are addressing um, through types of communication that we have and also through I would say subjects that we're discussing I mean, because the subjects in science, they change with the um, technical approaches that we have to address scientific questions. That in turn opens new avenues for new new ways of addressing a question, actually new ways of finding a question. And, uh, and in that way, then you need to find a good way um, to communicate your findings, your questions, your 
understanding of the process and maybe the um, the peer discussion that you have and maybe even overreaching the peer boundaries with, let's say now you want to discuss um, research findings with the public that has a diverse background of any sort possibly. So you, you constantly have to work on improving communication and, and trying to find ways in which it leads to an understanding on both sides. That understanding on both sides is important. Very important. Um, okay, so you um, you talked a little bit about a gender gap in science uh, with young kids. I, I read in that article, the San Diego Magazine. Oh, um, so hang for a second. Yeah, sure. Th that question was imposed on me. <laughs> oh, was it? Yeah. Okay. Okay. You know, it, it, the the triggers for many of those questions were imposed on me. I would not have brought them up, you know, as my own order of preference. I see. Um, so, are you willing to talk about that? gender gap a little bit? Because I, I, I guess my question is kind of leaning towards, is there a communication issue with kids and science and communicating them to how important science is? Um, so, not, but, but, but what does communication with kids have to do with gender gap? Well, there's a, there seems to be more males than females. There's a, there's a bit of a difference. In um, science. You in mean. science, yes. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just curious if there's a reason for that, and maybe part of it is because science isn't communicated all that well when they're kids, um, to get them excited about science and want to pursue that as a career in life. Huh. Um, so I'm just curious if yeah. maybe communication is the cause of that, or poor communication or lack thereof. You know, that's an interesting question. Um, if I go back to my own history, like how I got excited uh, about science is, in my case, well, you know, I didn't have anything to do with I think it was a personal, very personal issue, and I think in everybody's, in an individual's uh, um, choice or you know inclination as to what they get excited about, it's probably a mixture of both. You know how, in which way they have been primed to respond to triggers of excitement, but also internal. And I think in science, you must have internal drive. That is something that I have learned over the years, and it's something that um, becomes so clear to me in so many aspects and regards every single time you know, I talk to someone. If I meet a new graduate student, so for example, in uh, February and March, I will interview new graduate students that have sought admission to our Kellogg School of Science and Technology. And it's very interesting what the driving uh, motivations are, what they put down as to why they chose this direction, why they want to pursue it so relentlessly. Um, there's the, that thing, you know, and then as an interviewer like me, you know, as a mentor, you have to kind of see through the brag sheet type of boilerplate that somebody puts down and do they really mean it, right? So it comes back to that um, in your question of if you're talking about kids or young young individuals, right? How do they get primed? I think they get primed by exposure to subjects that would trigger the excitement. So, for instance, if if kids are um, allowed to are now with nowadays uh, media and um, access to just about any type of information, you know, you can you can choose what you're reading, you can choose what you're listening to, you can choose what you're watching, but if there's a certain um, precedence, let's say, in your family. You know, for instance, if the family watches TV and they watch um, 
nature shows, documentaries, something that would spark your interest in nature, in science, in you know physics, mathematics, chemistry, or something. Then, then that individual might you know respond to something like that, might find excitement, and also, of course, will find excitement in something that their role models see, seem to get excited about. So, in my case, you know, I didn't, for instance, and I think I was a pretty kind of blank page. <laughs> so I didn't grow up in a family, you know, where everybody was a scientist or people didn't have a history in this and that. But my parents had an innate uh, curiosity um, and we would venture out and do weekend excursions into nature like every single weekend, you know, whether rain or shine or whatever. And um, so the exposure to nature, questions that came up, you know, on hikes and stuff about, you know, how do things work and whatnot was something that excited me. And then at school, um, I was, I think, naturally drawn to biology, uh, chemistry. And uh, in a sense, I think that was something that became then my internal drive, right? To um, overlay with my internal kind of motivation makeup. So I think people are different in, in many ways. Um, Again, I'm seeing this from a very subjective standpoint, you know, and I'm trying to see, you know, how how a kid in 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 high school or so would respond to something like that. And there's probably a spectrum of how people respond to to triggers that spark their curiosity, um, in which way they translate that into action, into decision making of, you know, do they want to pursue this as a professional career in the end, you know, do and stuff like that. And if you want, I can go back to my own example later on, if you like. Let, let's circle back around if, if we need to. I, 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 I'm, I'm kind of curious, um, you know, if, how, I'm trying to think of how to word this question. Um, you know, you brought up uh, getting, getting kids, getting out there in nature like you did, <clears throat> and, and hopefully that would be a, a good trigger mm -hmm. um, to raise questions and want to kind of um, push them to pursue that that knowledge and, and gain that information. Do you think today that's harder because of maybe technology getting in the way? You know, people with their phones, they don't, they don't look up and around. Um, you know, <laughs> do you think that, that it's harder nowadays than it was, was maybe when you were a kid? It was definitely different then, you know, and I mean, in a comical way, it's very different today because people walk around with their cell phones and they don't look up, you know, to the point where they hit a lamppost, right? I mean, it's like, whoopsie suddenly a reality <laughs> impact hits and then uh, oh and maybe then they have to go to a hospital and get stitches or something then they see uh, people running around in white gowns and asking them questions about their health status you know do you have insurance stuff like that you know suddenly they get into a whole new world and which is called reality now the other part is reality too but it can be very virtual you can think you're in it poof your battery goes dead you're out of it um so to what degree do you involve yourself with something? And I, I can't really say um, how it must feel today as opposed to back in the day, you know, when I, when I had the, uh, the exposure to nature or whatever triggered me. But I can tell you one thing, which is, um, so I like to work with young people. I have graduate students, but they are, of course, pretty advanced in their um, development already, but I also have the privilege of sometimes working with high school students um, or or people who are in their um, 
beginning stages of college education. They come in here as uh, interns, for example, over the summer. I always love to have some interns. And last year I had, I mean, last summer I had three. And uh, I tell you, they are exposed to a completely different type of, you know, triggering and uh, information gain. But the one thing which I noticed in all three of them that I had, and one was like a recurring student, she keeps coming back because she seems to like it, right? And she's also local, so she can do it. Um, the one thing that I noticed in all three of them was they weren't any different than me back then. You know, even though they learn all kinds of things through Google, through God knows what, but their, their questions that they had for me and um, their uh, perception of what information will I draw on to make a decision for my life, you know, for my career move or in whichever way, were the same, were exactly the same. So I felt, I felt really good, you know, connecting with them because I could connect with them. I, I didn't feel like I was, you know, from a different planet and they, they didn't understand me. I didn't understand them. Quite the contrary. I, I was very, very happy about that. And we connected so directly and, um, you know, even though I know that they, and I learned from them too, right? <clears throat> because I checked in which way they, they, uh, draw information. I told, I taught them some ways as to how to use the resources that they have to draw the information that they needed for certain questions that I asked them to address. Um, it, in a sense, coming back to your original question, which is, um, uh, how does someone get primed to pursuing what they ultimately do, possibly for a living, but also for life fulfillment in a way, um, if you will, then the questions that they had were exactly the same. And the desires to find uh, something meaningful to do were exactly the same. So I was, I was very happy about that. That's interesting, because there's usually over, over the course of time, there's always that disconnect between generations. Um, and to have something like science tie it together, yeah. that's, that's good. You know, it's, I don't meet many younger generations than me that I kind of can connect with anymore, you know, because I don't have much in common. Like my experience is, I remember a rotary phone. You know? Oh yeah, I do too. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> but if you if you say, hey, do you remember rotary phones? They're like, what's a rotary phone? Yeah, you know, but then, remember the thing where you would do this, and they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. But that's okay, you know, that's cool because they might find it cool to get some stuff like that as a retro thing in their house. Exactly. Down exactly. Road, you I'd know. be like, well, I had it first before you did. <laughs> so, um, all right. So. I want to talk a little bit about writing. Just a, one quick question about that. You've written um, books and patent requests um, for. Uh, things that are highly technical and, and research specific. Um, and that requires a specific type of audience to have that background. Is there a certain writing style needed for writing patent requests? Yeah, the patent request from, you know, the spectrum that you just mentioned is, is very different. And I have to say with that, I had a lot of help. Um, what I do is if I would like to uh, throw out the idea that I would seek the opportunity to kind of file for a patent on something, I write what we call a disclosure, and the disclosure is more something like a scientific paper. It's kind of my style, um, where I where I present what I have. I make a case for the novelty of what I've found in light of the literature that's out there, the the prior art, if you will. So, and I don't necessarily look at it at 
from that level, you know, because I'm not a lawyer. And so for that type of um, writing, you need a lawyer involved, of course. So you write up your disclosure, you make your scientific point, then you meet with a lawyer who will then translate this whole thing into a patent application. Um, very different from when you write a paper or when you write a grant application. That's something that you start in your mind with your team and then you write it up and it's your baby from start to finish. Um, and then it gets peer reviewed, you know, with and by people who are in your field. Um, and you get feedback, you polish it, or you make your stance for what you don't want to change. And uh, then you throw it out into the peer community, which is basically the group of people who will understand what you write, if you write it in those terms. In a grant application, you really, really work it hard to make everybody understand what you wanted to do and you know how valuable it is that you want to do a certain thing. and. Uh, and that is, you know, pat so to me, the most valuable, I will not, I shouldn't say valuable, the most um, important documents that I write are scientific papers and grant applications. And they are like start to finish in-house type of, you know, my own stuff with the team, of course, generating the data. It's interesting that a lawyer has to translate that into is it patent language then? Is yes. it legalese? Like it's very... It, it, it is not necessarily total legalese at that point in time because it still has the points that you wrote down in your disclosure, but it now come, becomes broken down into bits and pieces that the patent literature attorneys are looking at. So the, the development of a patent is like a disclosure, then a patent application, then it gets reviewed by... Um, really patent lawyers, you know, they primarily look as to whether or not what you propose is novel. Um, and then all kinds of things happen that I haven't quite fully wrapped my head around, <laughs> right? So, but it, it becomes really a, um, a piece of document of its own nature and then, and then hopefully um, it will translate into something that can be valuable for somebody else who wants to license it and take it to the clinic, for example. That's cool. I like how that it's it's like a language has been repurposed into yes. their own language. Yes, that's, that's kind of cool. Um, all right, so a couple of questions as far as ethics are concerned, and feel free to say I don't want to answer this one because uh, I know we, we talked a little bit about this before. Uh, do you feel um, that the science community is communicating well enough to audiences without a scientific background? It depends on what type of media you are referring to. If you ask in general, is the science community doing a good enough job to inform the general public about what they do? Um, that is a question I cannot fully answer, not because I don't want to, but because I haven't really studied, you know, what, what is out there. I, if you look, for example, at uh, media that are being distributed to the general public, for instance, Scientific American, something like that, it's fantastic. Um, if you look at documentaries um, on the Discovery Channel, if you look at documentaries on national public um, television, it's fantastic material. And uh, people have put, uh, obviously, a lot of, a lot of um, emphasis and heart into trying to communicate things to the general public. Uh, you have Alan Elder 
who received a prize recently for being an advocate. You know, he, he's an actor, he's a brilliant actor. And he was, I think this whole thing was triggered by him. I don't know in which context he ended up being um, in a course of uh, um, the, uh, the Institute for, for um, methodology and distribu distribu uh, distribution of methodological knowledge. And so he became an advocate really for the translation of scientific information to the general public. And that I thought was brilliant to take on that mission. And, you know, he, he found it was very important. And he obviously in some of his roles back in the day when he was uh, starring in MASH, for example, he was, a, he was a medical doctor and he had to inform the audience as to what was going on, you know, what was the problem with this patient and whatnot. And so I think that probably must have been on his mind a lot. So um, how do we as bench scientists, for example, or as individual principal investigators or as groups of, of investigators on a team communicate to the general public? Sometimes I think maybe uh, not well enough, but we're looking for opportunities and I take opportunities here within my uh, in-house yeah, need and I at the Scripps Research Institute, I think we put a lot of emphasis in trying to reach out. It's an outreach activity because the general public usually does not necessarily come to you and ask, what is it that you're doing? You know, they, they may not even know we exist. If you go out in to a study section, for example, so I serve a lot on uh, NIH, National Institutes of Health study sections where grants are being reviewed, stuff like that, where the scientists come together and review other people's grant applications. We do this to each other as a it's a non-profit, it's, a, it's a, a service to the community really and you give it your best shot, you really honest to God, give it your best shot to review um, from the best of your knowledge in the field. When you go out and you expose yourself to these communities, everybody knows the Scripps Research Institute. If you go out to a local community here, even within San Diego, and you start to talk about the Scripps Research Institute, they say, oh, it's either Scripps Health or it's the Scripps Institute of Oceanography. They have heard about, very few people sometimes have heard about us and what we do as general scientists. So one thing which was kind of interesting was when I connected or when we connected with Erin um, Chambers-Smith, the editor of the San Diego uh, magazine, um, we invited her and she came and she was first of all surprised to learn of our existence and who we were. And then suddenly, you know, while we were talking to her, she noticed, oh, she does have a connection with us because uh, one of her kids took a drug and survived because of a drug that was developed here at Scripps. So very few people know, um, not necessarily that we are developing drugs, but we are setting the stage for the development of drugs that then go to a clinic. So this was a drug that uh, a newborn in her case, you know, I think her daughter also had taken and would have not survived without it. So suddenly uh, she knew where this thing came from. <laughs> and that was interesting. You know, there was, I think, an eye-opening experience to her that there's people out there, out of big pharma, who are setting the stage for the development of a medicine, for example. This is how it starts, right? It starts here with someone discovering something then write, writing maybe a disclosure, then writing a patent, then some company, some drug pharma company gets excited in the possibility of licensing this patent because they may see 
an opportunity for profit in it, and then they take it, and then they develop it to clinical application. So um, in our case here, I think we have um, the need and the desire to talk to the general public. Sometimes the, the way in which we find ways in communicating it may, may not be sufficient, I think. I think it would be great to have more interaction um, between the general community and us. And I think for the most part that we have to do the outreach because community apparently, you know, is oblivious sometimes. So, so we, have to, we have to be proactive. Do you think, you know, reaching out to actors, for example, like Alan Alda or anybody else that isn't a scientist would be um, useful? Yes, absolutely. I would say uh, some people who has a public persona, um, anybody with a public persona, I think would be super important, you know, to come because that person could be um, a medium for us, for example, to express ourselves and connect with the community. It could be some, because the community would know the public persona person. Um, public persona person would all of a sudden get to know us. We would be talking to each other. So then maybe through that interaction, a dialogue could start. I would love to do that. That'd be, that'd be a good idea. I think, I think a sort of, um, there's a, there's a corporate word for it where you, um, you, you learn all different kinds of, of jobs within the company, even though you only have, you only do that one job. Yes. You know them all and it makes your job easier. Mm -hmm. Um, so I feel like, more scientists and, and the science, even just the scientific community, should be reaching out to other people as well. Yes. Um, now, I want to actually, along those lines, and, and we talked briefly about this earlier, um, unfortunately, science can be kind of political. And we've got people out there who are um, kind of saying things that aren't actually accurate. They're doing it for a personal agenda, so to speak. Um, so I want to talk a little bit, I know doctors <coughs> in the hospital sense, mm -hmm. um, have a, a Hippocratic Oath. Yes. Do scientists have that? And if not, do you think that that would be useful in keeping that, um, the sort of the uh, moral or ethical um, and factual scientific research out there and available? You know, that's a very in interesting point that you bring up, Adam. Um, my immediate inclination, you know, to this question is, we don't need it, we have it. We don't need a Hippocratic Oath. From all I know, you know, of my many years in basic science, and I'm talking about basic science in the academia, which is non-profit science, academic science, um, I have not met one person where I felt like this person wasn't fully devoted to finding, if you want to boil it down to the truth, you know, I mean, the truth is something that is, I don't know if it exists or not, but um, you want to find a meaning in something, you want to understand something, that's your innate curiosity, that's your drive. You're not out there to find something that you're purposefully looking for. You're purposefully looking for an answer, but you're not purposefully looking for a particular answer that will advance you as a person, that would, you know, cross your ethic or ha where you might run into ethics problems because now you're mixing your personal agenda, for example, of uh, getting rich or 
um, getting out of a certain situation that you find difficult or something, that's, that's not the person you find in academia. I have not found one. I have not found one. So I think it is, I mean, we have education, we have formal education on ethics, and we can, can come back to that if you like. But I have to say that um, the, there's a certain kind of person that is drawn to academic science. And I, I watch out to that, for that, you know, when I interview the graduate students. Um, I get the vibes as to where they're coming from. I get the vibes as to what's the boiler, the brag sheet, boilerplate type of stuff. I get the vibe of who this person is, you know, in terms of what are they driven by. And at that point in time, they are very young, you know, they're, they're not driven by, I don't know, profit or something. Of course, everybody has to, in the end, think about, uh, will I be able to make a living? <laughs> Um, with what I do. And academic science traditionally has been a very difficult choice in that regard because it doesn't provide you a lot with a lot of personal wealth opportunities. Um, it provides you with something else. And if people see that, we can come back to what that is. Uh, if people see that, then they're so drawn to it that they throw away the idea of Gosh, will I be able to make a living on it? And that might not even be a healthy concept, you know, but that's the drive. And so, how do you get the? How do you how do you make sure that um, the up and coming scientists are are um, sticking with that? I want the scientific answer and and not so much personal gain. I'm just I'm trying to figure out what what can be done to ensure that they're sticking with. Um, science-driven work instead of emotion or, or money-driven um, work. And so how do, we, how do we effectively communicate that to the grad students so that they can factually communicate to society? Yeah. <clears throat> There's different levels on which you do that. And that's a very, very, very important task. And the task lies primarily with a mentor, I think. With a mentor and with the educational program that they are being kind of reared in, you know, that they're being exposed to. Um, as a mentor, I think you you have your ethical standards um, that you have developed over time that you have subscribed to, really, you know, that's who you are. Um, you try to convey to your students um, <clears throat> the values that are dear to you at all levels. Um, and the ethics part is a very important one in that regard. And, it you know, you don't go in and look at um, well, you find if there's an inclination in a person not to pursue the finding of information as it presents itself to you, you know, through the glasses that you look at it, through the types of essays that you throw at it and the readouts that you get. If you find that um, raw values that come out of a primary analysis like that are not being used in that way, then that's a really, really big red flag. And how do you respond to that? Um, you talk to that person, and then you observe that person very closely. Uh, and I will not say you start now to judge or so, but it, it, I found also that's a very important part of the job that I have as a mentor is to find if a person really wants to go in the direction they are seeking to go into. If I find, and I have had several examples, not because of ethical issues, but of other issues, you know, that I wasn't aware of in person itself, 
uh, or themselves weren't aware of. But when I find that a person doesn't really want to go in the direction that they have chosen to um, formally pursue, then I take them to heart very, very sternly. I mean, not that I impose myself on them, but I ask, and there was one person in my group, for example, uh, that I called in and I asked her in that case if she really knew what she wanted to do with her life from after being a postdoctoral fellow. And um, it turned out that she, for the first time, I thought I was, I was connecting with that person really deeply. And she broke down and said, I don't really know. So I said, I want you um, to take a week off and walk on the beach or do something where you don't necessarily do a lot of activity, but just connect with yourself and find out what you want to do and then come back to me. And I also asked her whether or not she was stable enough to do that, you know, to be on her own during that week. And she said yes, and I believed she was, because for a while I thought she might not. But she was, and um, after that week she came back and <laughs> her face looked different. She did do what I asked her to do, and she found something. And she came back to me and she said that she had really reflected on this and that she felt like the career moves that she had made so far were brilliant moves. And she went from Ivy League school to Ivy League school, right? She now went to Scripps from an Ivy League school, and Scripps is a very, you know, prestigious place for a graduate program as well. So she was kind of set up in this very Ivy League-oriented type of career movement. And then I ask her, what do you really want to do? And she comes to me and says, I would like to become um, a college teacher. And not, you know, the Nobel laureate scientist. And I say, congratulations, I think you found yourself, possibly, you know, I think you found yourself, go do it. And I throw her out after that, you know, because she wasn't wanting to do the postdoc. I mean, but, but I threw her out in a loving way, right? Because I wanted her to pursue what she wanted to pursue. Later on, I, I did a little Google search on her and she's now a college teacher up in Oregon somewhere. So she did what she wanted to do. And I hope she's happy. That's good. So she, she kind of, she um, found her sort of moral compass, I guess, or her ethical direction. She found her own direction. Her own direction, yeah. And not necessarily what her Ivy League career and maybe her parents or God knows who, you know, was expecting of her. Mm -hmm. And I had to give her the kick in the butt really hard, you know, to kind of connect with herself. So, but that's what I'm saying, you know, back to this ethics question that you had. If you find, um, and I had not, ha didn't have that. Uh, I had one example where it was a little different and it, and, you know, that person is no longer here. But um, if you find that somebody is kind of struggling with that issue, because it's it can be a struggle, because what comes out of, let's say, the temptation, uh, I give you just one example, right? Um, and, but it boils down to this very ethical question. What comes out of the temptation of uh, manipulating data set, for example, in your favor, whatever inclination you may have, you are now manipulating something that nature apparently through the set of analyses that you threw at it did not tell you. Um, if you have that inclination, and maybe it's better to do something else, because you, if you want to stay in academic science, you have to have the absolute desire 
to live with what you see, um, to try to s find what you can see in an, in a nature result, which may be a negative result in your opinion at the time, right? Because you have expected something else. So now you have different options. You go ahead and you falsify it in your way. <laughs> and that is not, if somebody who wants to do that is not a person who needs to pursue this career. They can pursue something else which makes them happier and maybe is better for society altogether. It could be, but not for academic science. It doesn't belong. So, well, actually, I want to kind of take that and, and sort of run with that a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, I'm kind of curious about when you said data um, manipulation. If you're a scientist out there and you're trying to get research funding, yes, um, how tempting is it to sort of say, "Look where I'm going," and if you just kind of, I'll use. Um, Pie charts and graphs, for example, those are easily manipulated to get a point across, a specific point across. You know, it's you're only showing a specific data set that shows what you want people to know. Um, how tempting is that to do that to get funding? You know, this is a very important uh, and pertinent point these days because um, to get funding these days has become very hard. So the possible temptation level could rise when you do that. <clears throat> There's a couple of issues um, that you address. First of all, you have a page limit, so you cannot possibly put everything in. So you would not necessarily overload your peer review group with a bunch of negative data that you've had. You sit there and you sort out with yourself, what would I like to do if I had this pot of money available to me? What would I like to do with that pot of money based on what I know to generate valuable information for the betterment of human health, for example, the particular field you're studying, you know, in my case, cancer research. What, what can I do with that pot of money to help a cancer patient in the field that I'm studying? It's not that I'm sitting here thinking, um, of course I'm sitting here thinking, how can I possibly survive, right? But the drive as to how can I possibly survive comes out of starting from the top down, right? And that's, I think that should be really your, uh, at least that's the way I address it. So resources are limited and finite and your own time is limited and finite. What can I, how can I best invest my own time, my own life drive, uh, and possibly hopefully some money that I get to execute a certain program. How can I best apply that to reach a goal to make somebody who is now lying in bed and having no chance of a cure, to having a better life, maybe a longer life, maybe even a cure. What can I do? And I think that's what needs to drive you. Not necessarily your, how can I, you know, how is this pie chart best presented or something. You present then your preliminary data in a sense that it makes sense that you can pursue, I mean, unless you are somebody who is like super uh, well known in the field, you can throw out a new concept without necessarily showing the individual data for that because people will grant you that you can do it because you've done it before, right? So the, the majority of the mere mortals <laughs> have to show preliminary data. So you have to then f walk a fine line between, okay, what is my dream goal? I want to help this person in the bed who's dying. And what is it that I have that I can do? And what is it that I can do to get from what I can currently do to get to help the person who's dying? And that often involves something which is like um, 
super fulfilling, I would say. And it is a challenge. I think the challenge, you know, it depends. Let's say you have this initial temptation type of scenario going, right? So then I think my recommendation or my personal approach is to start from the top down. How can I help this person who is dying? And I have had scenarios, you know, and many people have had that scenario where they look at somebody who is in that situation and you go like, whoops, this is what I'm here for, right? This is my, this is my goal in life really to help uh, and not as a physician, but as a basic researcher that you are. So then you go from what can I do right now, right here from uh, reaching this goal and you walk this line and in the middle you see I cannot do this alone I have to reach out and have to build uh, um, collaborative efforts then you try to find which collaborative efforts do I need Wh what are what are the procedures that I need to get from where I am to where I want to be what is the expertise that I don't personally have the stack of technical approaches that I don't have and I have a really good example for that right now that I'm pursuing. And and then I reach out, right? And and I feel like, and this is why I'm so happy in this environment, because I find most of what I need right across the street, right around within my own microenvironment. And that's the beauty of a free academic research institute like, like we are, really. And this is what I value so much here, because you have diversity. You have a lot of diversity. You find yourself, okay, I'm a cancer researcher, I have this and this and that going. I need um, genomics, I need proteomics, I need structural biology, I need chemistry. I have the best people in the world right around me to address those issues. I reach out to them. I've never had somebody close the door on me. Not here, you know. So that's that's what I love. And this is where I see the opportunity when the challenge comes, you know, when I want to write a grant. And I don't have everything to uh, to answer the question. I mean, back in the day, possibly people were sitting in their offices and were philosophizing about their, their, the question that they were addressing, and maybe that was the best they could do sometimes because they had they didn't have email, they didn't have all these social media going on. There. But they could walk across the street, you know, if they had another scientist sitting there, or they even traveled by by train, by boat, by whatever, to reach out and find other people in the world to help. That must have been interesting, you know, to say, I need to talk to this person, he's in another state, it's going to take me two days by carriage. Yeah. You know, like that. And now, just get on the phone. Yeah. It's totally different, I'm sure. So, But, but it's good that it, it almost sounds like your moral compass can actually be driven by that funding you're trying to get. Like... It'll it'll keep you in check. It almost, in a way, now the more I think about it, it seems like there's sort of a a, a dual dance going on where it'll <clears throat> that funding will keep your moral compass in check, but you need to make sure that your own moral compass is already in check going into trying to get funding yes. or that kind of. That oh, this absolute must! You know, you go in with your moral compass totally intact. You have to. You have to. Because there will be challenges in every which way <laughs> coming at you, you know, and that that is something. And this is why I was saying when you asked me about, um, you know, students, uh, and, and you probe them, you probe them really hard because this is not necessarily that you want to become that you want to have every student that you mentor to become an academic scientist because that's 
not the reality, and maybe in the future that may not even be the opportunity, but um, to set them up with your current set of values. Like, you know, we had this at the last commencement ceremony. Uh, um, Dr. Schultz actually said that in that the mentoring uh, a group of people is like a family to you, and I have perceived it always like that. You know, they are kind of like your academic parents in a way, and they hold you, you know, by the standards. They they show you the values. They try to live the values and um, guide you in, into the finding the values for yourself. And then, and then, of course, you know, there is reality as to uh, do you really want to subject yourself to this? Because, like you said in the beginning, there's all kinds of um, things. And that is basically doesn't necessarily apply only for academic science, but in, in, in any situation in life, I think, when you have your moral compass and your moral compass tells you a certain thing, and you're very clear in that, um, then, of course, to reach a certain goal um, in your job or in your life, you you encounter obstacles all the time, all the time. And so here's this moral compass that goes with you and that helps you to find ways like I said, you know, you look at this person in a hospital bed, you now find ways in which you connect with your peers, um, you collaborate, this or that, instead of modifying your pie chart and saying, I want this amount of money, and then I go to town which with whatever. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I think this, you brought it really up very clearly, Adam. I think the moral compass is a... Yeah, it's a guide, it's a, campus, a compass, you must have it, you must be able to read it clearly. And then you basically um, find ways to address the questions that are being thrown at you, to find ways to survive, um, to help the patient in the hospital bed if, if you can, you try as hard as you can, and you don't violate your moral compass. Yeah, moral compass. It's gone out the window these days, it seems. Um, anyway, I want to talk, you brought up obstacles, so I want to ask a, a couple more questions about process and failure, if you have time. Oh, okay. um, have there ever been any like sort of harrowing experiences in your life, that, uh, or even your career, that taught you, taught you a lesson in how to communicate your research and work um, to audiences without losing them? In many different ways, um, in, and also at many different levels. And I don't, I don't want to write the levels against each other, but one level, for example, is your peer group, right? You give a talk, you, you get answers back, you get people writing you, you get students reaching out to you to want to work in your group. Um, and that is very gratifying. And, you know, you, you engage in a conversation and sometimes you engage in, um, in a discussion where not everybody has the same opinion, obviously. That, and that is challenging and kind of enlightening and enriching in its own way <laughs> because it pushes you to consider different viewpoints, right? And that's something that I like. You expose yourself, really, when you communicate. You bring out um, information and you bring it out in your way. We all have perceptions. 
one person may look at a tree and say it's green, another person may look at it and say it's blue, and it could be a cultural thing. And um, and there's nothing wrong with blue or green. <laughs> you just have to realize that what you what you what you throw out is your personal viewpoint, in a sense, in the context of your scientific findings in this case. But um, to then have somebody else look at it in a different way and throw a question at you uh, enriches you, and uh, sometimes it enhances, it kind of reinforces what you were already thinking, or, or it throws you off balance for a moment and you think, whoopsie, wait a minute, what do I need to consider here to address this question that this person had? And I, may I give you one example? Absolutely. So, and this is a, at a different quote level, if you will, because, and I come back to this level because it is something that has tremendously enriched me. And this is why I'm looking at the person in the hospital bed, because, you know, I'm not a physician, I'm a PhD, and I shouldn't, I'm not obliged to ask how is this person in the hospital bed doing, but that's, you know, my mission. And so the level that I was referring to is the level of, uh, in my case, advocacy involvement. So one time I had my first grant from the California Breast Cancer Research Foundation. I was very proud of it. I had my molecular mechanism all, I will not say all figured out, but I had it, you know, going and I was thinking at the scientific level, I've really made a discovery here. So I go to this conference where I was invited to present my results and I stand there and I give my little talk. And a person walks up to me later on and she's a breast cancer survivor, obviously, right? Because this type of conference included the scientists and included the, quote, stakeholders, meaning the patients and patient-related uh, people, you know, healthcare givers and persons like that. So this person walks up to me and she has a headscarf on and I look at her and I think, whoopsie, she's in chemotherapy or has just come out of it or something. She doesn't look good. She doesn't have any hair. Um, she doesn't feel good. And she walks up to me and she says, you know, Bruni, what you just told us is very, very interesting, but what does it do for me? And suddenly I saw her and I saw the clock. I saw the clock tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. And I thought, what can I tell this woman? Because her clock is not looking at infinity or possibly years. It may be looking at, I don't know what, I don't, I don't know what the status of her health was, but it, she could be looking at months. And I kind of, um, I don't know what I told her, but I internally broke down completely. Um, it was an experience that I will never forget. <laughs> and I flew home that night crying. Because I thought, what have I done now? You know, I have, I won this grant. I have this molecular mechanism. I was proud, standing up for it, telling everybody. And then she walks up to me and says, what can you do for me? And I realized I could probably not doing any, do anything on her time scale. So then I realized, whoopsie, you know, what is my purpose in life here? <laughs> uh, you know, going back to the top-down type of approach, and it became very difficult and has become very difficult recently for me here because a couple of uh, people that were dear to me died of cancer recently, including one of my graduate students, mind you. Sorry to hear that. 28 years old, in my lab, gets diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer. And um, I learned so much from that person, you know, because I mentored him all the way to the point where he then died. Um, other people, and I mean, it's it shouldn't be my, my, 
I don't know why I'm saying it shouldn't be, um, can it be my purpose in life to help someone like that? Can it be my person in life to help this woman with a headscarf? In the end, I think it must. <laughs> you know, that's because that's really what drives me, and that's also what drives me nuts, because um, I see my limitations, but then, you know, you stretch as hard as you can to reach your goal, and so I am stretching a lot, and I'm stretching in the sense of trying to uh, connect with collaborators to ramp up a program to really do something. And so that one experience, you know, you, you communicated almost enough for this one individual <clears throat> and because you couldn't communicate more it kind of drove you to do more yes she changed my life how long ago was this if you don't mind me asking oh i don't know exactly but i would say 15 years or something like that in that neighborhood and, the, and or even longer and the science is different now since then I, I would think so if she asked now would it have been would you have maybe had closer to an answer for her? Um, she came back to me, I mean, not she as a person, but she came back to me in different people, you know, who okay. reached out. So she keeps coming back to me. Um, I don't know what her personal history is, if she survived this or not, but it, having people coming back to me and looking at, and I'm, I'm not going through this life, uh, turning my head away, I'm looking and I'm seeing them and sometimes they reach out and sometimes I reach out when I see them, you know, so it becomes kind of a, a bi-directional type of opportunity. So, um, yeah, and I, I, yes, I think these days with nowadays technology, for instance, and also my grown experience um, in my realization as to what really the goals are, and that made a huge change, I tell you that, you know, that I cannot, I just told you it was a life-changing experience and that's really what it was. So that made me think um, away from my, you know, because I was so in my molecular mechanism and it, it could have, I don't know if it could have determined my career going from there, like be, being in that type of uh, research all the time. And, and maybe it's a danger also because you expose yourself to trying something new and it exposes yourself to um, reaching out a little bit beyond your own, like, you know, this particular expertise, but then again, you have to bring in the collaborative efforts. And I think the value that we know, that I see in myself, for example, and I ask myself, actually, I don't ask myself, but I was kind of asked myself, or was asked by a colleague recently, who also found it like many, you know, found it very, very difficult to obtain funding. And he said, Bruni, what do you think? My expertise lies in this, this, and this, and that. And um, I don't think I was completely honest with him, but I, my inclination was, man, think about something new. <laughs> Not necessarily, don't forget what you know, but look, look at other ways of uh, using the information that you have, and it's a very valuable skill set and, and information set that you have. Um, to generate new information that is really groundbreaking and not so incremental and pedestrian. And I tell you one other um, kind of thought-changing experience that I had, and it's also a communication issue really, which I very much value. When I, and it sort of goes along with 
getting a grant, if you will, at least in my case, right? So I had this opportunity to meet this woman who then, you know, in many phases returned back to me and kind of set up my moral compass and my goals. But also, um, when I received my first NIH grant, like a, an R01, which is the most sizable grant, I had little or smaller grants before. But when I first received my first R01, the NIH, the National Cancer Institute, had a habit, I don't know if they still have it, of bringing together the new grantees. And our program director um, had us all sit there in a room and a couple of people from the NIH were telling us, were giving us moral compass information, which I really liked. And But they were, what they also told us, and that is something, again, you know, you sometimes have these experiences that you don't forget because they kind of set you up to think in a new way. So what this person said to me, or to us as a group, was, okay, um, here's this one paper. If I were asking you to read this paper, every one of you would come back telling me something different about this paper in the end. And naturally so, because you all look at it through the glasses of your experience, through the glasses of your desire where you want to go. And so you look at it from your viewpoint. And so therefore, um, and he, but he put it out in a very positive way. He said, it's your secret weapon. It's your secret and your unique weapon. And this is why I was um, telling my colleague, uh, I don't know if he got my drift or not, but it's your secret weapon that you can be proud of what you know and what you can understand, but you use it in the contemporary way. Don't get stuck in your like old ways and make it uh, make what you have and what how you can see certain things um, a value that you can then communicate to other people and then they throw back stuff at you and you realize oh I haven't thought about that and you know then it becomes interesting and fun so it's evolving yeah yeah okay. always okay um, <clears throat> so how much does communicating your work and research uh, play a role in your success as a scientist it's an absolute must. Without communication, it's even a logistical thing. You know, if you just sit there and think and never tell anybody about your thoughts, um, you can probably do that only if you're independently wealthy. <laughs> you know, if you find pleasure in that. But if you, uh, your success lies in trying to enrich your field, trying to survive as a person. Um, trying to survive as a uh, as a group leader to have funds, for instance, for your team to to build, maintain a team, and to do the work that you like to do. The communication is an absolute must, and it has to be effective and it has to be really good. Um, that is something also that you learn with time, that I learned with time, and. And it is also, you know, communication is one thing, then the way in which you communicate, then you are um, funding agencies, for example, impose on you formats in which you can communicate. And uh, you have to learn to do that effectively within the guidelines given. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, communication is basically next to actually doing the work the most important, I think. I do think that it's <clears throat> there are other professions where it's like that. I mean, outside of 
uh, news broadcasting or, or things like that? I mean, is communication, at least in science, compared to another field, do you think? Do other fields have that level of importance with communication than science does? Might be difficult to ask because you're not. Well, in no, I'm thinking, and I'm, you know, I will give you a, an immediate uh, a thought that came to my mind is this. So, um, I think communication is a very important aspect in just about any profession. I would think, even if you are, let's say, in an extreme case scenario, you're an astronaut out there in a space station by yourself, right? If you lose connection with ground control, um, you start to wonder. <laughs> Uh, you know, you go to the major Tom type of scenario, where are they, where I am, you know, what is my purpose up here, can I communicate what I'm finding back to them in some way, you, you want to communicate, that's, you know, I mean, because what you might find as an individual, you might find it fulfilling to answer your questions up there, but if you cannot communicate them back to your ground control, part of your mission is not fulfilled, right? So. How about other, um, how about other comparable professions, let's say? And the, and the first example that came to my mind was medicine, um, medical care, healthcare. And I think there is a really, really big gap to fill. And the back gap to fill is the communication with the patient. And I don't know if you have, uh, had a chance to talk to Eric Topol or to read his books. Mm -hmm. um, go and look up this book. It's called The Patient Will Now See You. Okay. Wow. It's an interesting one. It's an interesting it one. It comes at a different angle, doesn't it? It's a very different angle, and he takes it to the extreme. But look at that just for, you know, enlightenment or provocation, whatever. What I see is, I mean, of course, in the, in the hospital, what I see, so for example, and you, and I can see it from both the quote outsider colleague standpoint when I when I collaborate with medical uh, people and I can see it from the patient standpoint and I'm looking at to totally different levels of communication um, and so now the patient has become more independent and you would see that in Eric Topol's book the patient will now see you because the patient can now go to Google and look up certain things that the medical doctor may not tell them, may not have the time or whatever. Well, see, that's another communication issue, though, because I can go to Google, say I've, I've got a little spot on my arm. I go to Google and it'll either tell me that it's a zit or tomorrow I'm going to die. Like, it's so hard. I mean, the Internet can't communicate succinctly enough sometimes it seems especially when it comes to medical stuff um, and then you go to a doctor and you just hope that they give you the information you need so it's I, I'm I'm afraid of going to Google and interneting medical stuff yeah you should not be afraid but you have to look at your limitations in making decisions based on what you see right and I think you as a person who is so strongly aware of communication and what it means um, will not really have a problem with that because you can filter. You can read the information, you can say, okay, uh, now I have read that and it could be this, it could be that. It has enlightened you to a degree, right? So you advance your knowledge on the possible scenario. Can you make a decision whether or not you now need to go and have the thing cut out? Probably not. 
So you may want to go see your dermatologist and say, hey, do I need to have this thing cut out or not? You know, the dermatologist has various ways of looking at that. Then you, re you look at, and I really, <laughs> I really uh, want to motivate you to read up on Eric Topol's, uh, uh, not only that book, but other books and, and his overall drive, because he's trying to do exactly that. He's trying to empower, and not necessarily by making everybody sit there and read day and night, you know, and become the medical expert on their own condition, but to empower every one of us, basically, with devices that can help us find that out. So, for example, there are now devices um, that are being in the development with which you can take your own little skin sample, you can ro run your whole genome sequencing in the thing. Boom. At home. That's the goal. That's the goal. Yeah, even if you're out there, you know, in your space station, you see spots suddenly, you know, you know you will have osteoporosis because you don't have gravi gravity, stuff like that. So you work on that, right? Um, but <laughs> Eric Topol takes it to the extreme. And in the extreme is the patient will now see you type of scenario, right? I mean, so one has to be careful because, um, but it is a, it's an exercise to, to, to read up on his viewpoints and his books and whatnot, an exercise of um, trying to see what the age of information technology can provide us with and how we deal with it uh, to help us live a better life, <laughs> not to become like totally neurotic, which you could easily, you know, if you read up on all the stuff that could happen to you, you may not want to get out of the house in the morning. <laughs> and that's what I was getting at. Yeah, because if I keep reading, I'm, I'm just I'm gonna put tape on the windows. Yeah. Like I'm not gonna go anywhere. There's germs everywhere. This like, is bad. Yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> the outside is scary. So, um, what can you spell his last name? Topol. T O P O L. T O P O L. Okay, I am Eric. I'm gonna look up this book. Check him out. Yeah, because I've I've He's... been wanting to take control of my medical knowledge because I have I have my own issues, my own health issues, and I do research online, and then I go to a doctor, and I'm they tell me something else, and I'm like, I need to I need to get control of this. You know, I need to better understand it so I can. You want to understand it, and then based on that, you may not be able to be on doctor, but then you can seek out the help that you need in a more efficient way, maybe. Right. I guess my concern then is getting getting research from the internet and kind of running with the wrong information. Yeah, um, and that's the danger. Um, but the it's that is true, and. Um, if you follow a little bit about the Topol mission, I, I just frame it like this now, right? Because it's a kind of a um, a desire to empower people more to to use the information technology that's existing out there these days and which is being developed for them, you know, for us, for every one of us, to use that in a more efficient way to also um, uh, cut down on costs, for example. So Eric gave a talk. <laughs> some time ago to a mixed audience here. And if, are you local here in this? Uh, I've, for the last eight or nine years. Yeah. Oh. If, if he ever gives a talk again, go okay. and, and listen to it. It's, uh, he has, and he's super provocative. I, at least I feel provoked a lot, you know. And to my, to my benefit, to really to my benefit, because I sometimes I walk out of talks uh, that he gives with, with, with key insights that drive me to the next step. And at some point in time, not now, um, but we can talk about a program that I'm planning to run 
and how I arrived at the checkpoints as to where is it that I wanted to run, um, what is it that I was looking for, what is it that I was seeing, from what I was seeing, where did I find a new direction to run? Yes, I found a new direction to run. How do I then identify the goal that I have and how do I run uh, to reach that goal? And that uh, Eric, g going to one of Eric's talks was a very provocative checkpoint to me, you know, where I suddenly realized, oh, thank you, Eric, this is where I have to run. And this, you know, and I'm going to actually see him. Uh, actually, I was supposed to see him today, but uh, he couldn't because he was traveling. But I'm going to see him next week. I want to throw out my plan. I wrote to him my plan. And uh, because he is a visionary in a sense, right? And not only a visionary, but somebody who implements stuff. Um, and is he so from here? He has been living here for a while. Oh, he lives here. Okay. Yeah, he lives okay. here. He has okay. an inst I mean, he's part of Scripps. And oh, really? He's yeah. part of Scripps. Okay, I thought he was just a scientist in the area. I didn't know he actually... No, he is here. And he was okay. in Cleveland Clinic. He's a cardiologist by training. Okay. And wherever he has gone, you know, he has really left his footprints in, in various kind of uh, groundbreaking new ways. But what, and, and communication is a super important issue in, in you know, in his strategy. So Well, it, it, it got you yeah. to, it answered your questions. And, and in a way, isn't that what communication is? It's answering questions an audience may have or filling them with information that they want or need. Or... But, but here's a point, you know, that I would like to get across too. It's not necessarily um, answering questions, yes, it's a good thing, but being provoked to think in a different way is another very important point you take away from a communication. So, and that's, you know, the, that's what Eric didn't give me any answers. He gave me a new question that I realized. He didn't spell out the question, but I realized, whoop, there's a big question right here. That's, you know, where we need to make a difference because Here's all this information. There's a void. There is definitely a void. After that, you know, so how to process all this to help people? Right. We, we spoke with a professor who, um, he is a cultural anthropologist, um, and he did journalism before this. Um, and we talked a lot about being engaged with your audience and how to do that. And he talked about shock value. And how sometimes if you do it right, and don't do it too often, but if you do it right, it'll get your audience back with you. Um, Give me an example. So uh, he would be talking, and he can see sometimes in the audience there's fidgeting, <clears throat> you know, people coughing, or you see the blue glow of their phone on yes. their face, you know. Um, and in a way to get them back, he would sometimes say, you know what's really interesting? And people go, Oh, he's going to say something interesting now. Mm -hmm. um, so there's ways of, but he also, he told a kind of a racy story that I won't relay, but, um, <laughs> and I can't include in this series, but it was very interesting because it got attention, you know, and, and so I'm curious if that provocation should be used more often by communicators. Like, how do you, how do you, how do you provoke them in a way that is positive? Mm -hmm. You know, as opposed to turning them away. Um, but it sounds like Eric Tobel knows what he's doing. Let me just put it this way. Eric Tobel does what Eric Tobel does. So, and how you perceive it as the audience is your thing. You know, people resonate in different ways. 
see how I resonated to this woman who was coming to ask me with her headscarf on. I, I could have completely closed up and, and, and thought, you know, this is not my field or something like that. It depends who you are, how it resonates with you. Um, it, it, I really, really believe very strongly that most things are um, determined by individual responses, by individual choices. I cannot emphasize that enough. Even at a grand scale, um, you are, for instance, you are looking for something, and I come back to this communication thing, how you spark someone's interest, right? Um, so, but let's say there is a really big problem that you need to solve, and you need to solve it within a, a short period of time. Um, I have experience, and I think m many of us, but I have become a complete, uh, bec completely convinced that it is key to find the right individuals to help you um, or to achieve your goal if you you know you have your goal set. And it's not necessarily saying, oh, this individual, ah, you know, I don't like them because they couldn't help me or something. It's not that. It's that you just have to find somebody who is willing and capable. And willing and capable are two different things. Um, and, and, and in the case of making a true difference, the person has to be willing. Otherwise, it doesn't work. I mean, you can ask somebody for um, a fact check. For example, you ask somebody for their... Um, advice on, oh, let's see, I see this change here in the molecule, will that translate into a certain reactivity of the molecule in the context of its function in a cell? You go and you ask an expert on that and they give you the advice and or, you know, an opinion based on their knowledge and that's valuable. If you are in a situation where it is critical that you must have the right knowledge um, and possibly some support from this person, then you go and you ask and you get maybe the, the valuable information, but then you find this individual who beyond that says, you know, I see your point and I see your need here and I will help you to implement this. I will give you a key reagent or, you know, come back to me and tell me what you have found and I'll help you to, to make sense of what you have seen. Um, th those are critical issues. And in, in your audience that you have, uh, I don't know, you have maybe 20 people, you have 200 people, you have a large audience, and you are trying to get a point across. So you have various, of course, now you can draw on sev several strategic means to uh, engage your audience. And you can see, today you see this blue glare of the screen, right? But back in the day, and still you can look at someone and you can see whether or not you have engaged that person. You see it in their eyes, you know, are they kind of spaced or something, or are they with you? You can see that. And... Um, and even in a, in a 200 uh, uh, person audience, you can look at individual people. And that's what I do when I give a talk, for example. I, you cannot see the person in the last row, but you can look at individual people. And that is one way of engaging too. You know, you don't just go like, I'm out here somewhere. You look at individual people, you look them in the eye and you make eye contact, right? That's already an engagement right there. And then they feel like, oh, somebody's looking at me. Better pay attention. That, you know, was your own thought, but that was also the intention. <laughs> and you have it. And, uh, and then I have done this in a very stupid way once in a small audience. Can I give you that example? Absolutely. 
and did it in a completely stupid way. But to me, it was a great learning experience and it was given to it was filtered out to me back by a senior colleague who was also in the audience i had a small audience let's say 20 people something like that and i, I knew most of them and and many of them were colleagues right some of whom i had worked with very closely and i i gave my little spiel there and if this was like years back right and one of my colleagues and friends uh has this glazed look i see it you know and I make, make this cardinal mistake <laughs> of addressing him. I, I did not address him by just looking at him. I, I called out his name, you know, because I felt like this was a group of friends. I, I called out his name and I said, David, are you still with me? And <clears throat> he said, Bruni, tell me something new. There, I had it right back, right? It flew in my face. It was like, I lost him because it, uh, he thought it wasn't new enough what I was telling him. And, and this was a level of, you know, trust that we had with each other. And, and, but it hit me hard, you know, it hit me hard. And after that, I, I didn't make the mistake anymore of addressing someone directly, like in a school setting where you would point, point out a pupil and say, pay attention, Roger, or something like that, you know, a reprimanding way. It was stupid. It was super stupid. And I set myself up for, you know, the, <laughs> don't address the audience don't address the audience and you better tell them something new you tell them something new is one of the key issues right i mean so then you don't lose their attention too much and the way to communicate it is yours you, you know you have to try and work hard on that we we spoke with an mit another mit professor and she related her own story um where she was giving a talk in front of five thousand people and some um the american physical society i think it was and she was giving this talk on kinetics or it was chemistry based and <clears throat> but the audience thought she was there to talk about something else oh so she went she gave this talk and by the time she was done almost half of the crowd had left before she had finished mm. so she was like okay i need to know who my audience is you know and make sure that i'm telling them something new you know that they're there to hear what i want to say they're there to hear um the things I'm talking about, and I need to tell them something they don't know, um, and that that engages them. So when you brought that up, it just reminded me of that, mm -hmm. where she had the same thing. She didn't address the audience directly, but telling them something new is important. But you know, also, so two key things I'm hearing from what you just told me. Um, she was in a scenario, obviously, where there was a, where was a big meeting in the world. 2,000, 5,000 people, something like that. If you lose half of them, you still have 2,500 people, right? I mean, that's a big success right there. Because you cannot possibly expect, that's one thing, you know, your expectation. You cannot possibly expect that if you go to, I mean, you, you give a talk at a meeting, especially if it's a meeting where they have choices of, you know, multiple talks going on simultaneously, you just live with the fact that, you know, a good portion of your audience drifts out because they find that the other talk they really wanted to hear was probably more what they should be hearing right now and so they leave so you just let them go because they have another agenda in life and that's not your thing right you 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 go follow your thing and you engage the 2500 that are there but then there was another key thing that you told me she told them something that they did not expect she would be telling them how come 
Was the title different or? It, it could have been. Maybe they mi might have misunderstood um, the sort of description of the talk that was out there. Mm -hmm. um, another communication issue. Yeah. Um, you know, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly what um, they were expecting. <clears throat> The thing is also, you know, you just, I mean, if you do that, if you give a talk, um, and I'm sure you, you know, you have your own experiences in many different ways. The one thing I think you have to um, free yourself of is also to try to enlighten everybody in the room. Um, because they may not be there for the enlightenment at, at that given point in time or day or whatnot. And they may be looking for something else. And that's entirely their thing. You know, your thing is your thing and you communicate it the best you can. And if you enlighten, I don't know how many, you know, within your audience, you have achieved a huge uh, amount of um, success, I think, for yourself. I, I moderate panels at conventions. Um, yeah. And there have been times where people get <laughs> up, you know, and I'm always tempted to be like, don't leave. We're giving away free TVs, you know, like just to, don't, don't ever do that. It's, yeah. it's like my thing. Just exactly. Telling, They're going to turn around. David, yeah. yeah, yeah, they're going to turn so, around and sit down, and then at the end they're going to be like, "Well, you're not giving away a free TV, so why am I here?" Yeah, um, or go get your, you know, you knock yourself out on your free TV. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, Saturday <laughs> night, I was up in Los Angeles. Uh, well, uh, part, near Los Angeles, um, I do poetry reading, um, and I was doing a poetry reading up there in front of maybe 20 people, mm -hmm. um, and I could tell they were getting sort of fidgety because it was sort of towards the end of the night. So I got up there. And I'm not much of a performer, but this time I was like, I, all the things I'm doing here, I have to engage my audience. I learned this. Um, so I got up there and I was just very physically um, uh, open and sort yeah. of very, use my hands, use my feet. You know, I was walking and body movement. Um, and it's, they were engaged. And I can mm -hmm. see when I got mm -hmm. off stage, they were all looking at me as opposed to looking around, checking their phone. Mm -hmm. like, so yeah, you have to really engage that audience and try to come up with ways to keep them in front of you, so to speak. Yeah, and everybody has their own style in a sense, right? I right. mean, and it depends on what you talk about. But usually if you have a choice, and, and for the most part you have a choice as to what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. For instance, in a poetry reading, you, you chose what you were reading. And so you chose something that you felt passionate about. and you let out your passion on stage. You read it with emphasis and you read it with your body language and everything. And people who, you know, resonated to that, they resonated and you had pretty much everybody engaged. So, yeah, and I mean, then there can be people who, you know, ha who are taking on a completely different wavelength entirely or at that moment in time. So you can't get any resonance and that's, you know, fine. Yeah, be passionate. <laughs> be passionate about what you're doing. Be yourself. Yeah. Be pa if you and, and if the passion comes out naturally, yeah. So you're yourself. Okay. All right. Final question. I know we've been here a little while. I apologize. Um, I've I've enjoyed this. Thank you for talking with me. What advice do you have uh, for MIT grad students in regards to research communication and professional growth? I would say um, learn to communicate effectively. Realize that communication is a very important aspect of research, of science, of um, discovery. It really is. And if 
you feel for a while you have to sit and just be by yourself and mull over a certain data set or a thought or a concept that starts to develop in your mind and you need that time for yourself and with yourself only, do it. Give yourself that time and space. But then reach out and communicate. Um, expose your new ideas to feedback and be open to whatever feedback comes back and then use the feedback that you can understand and that you think can bring you forward um, in your research question, in your career advancement, in your personal growth. And um, after you have made the choices of filtering the feedback, run that again by other people to see how your filtering is going. And in the meantime, always work on your inner compass, check it back, check to see if you have a clear idea as to where your inner compass is morally, ethically, um, with respect to others. And I think ethics is includes to a large degree uh, respect um, for yourself and respect for others um, and respect for information that's out there that other people have generated in the past based on the best of their knowledge. And you, at that point in time, you just trust that they did this ethically. And... Um, and enjoy the experience, enjoy the personal growth and, you know, try to realize where you grow and own it, own that growth. And, uh, yeah, do enjoy it and be proud. Um, and do, do, and this is an important point, you know, that is actually never stopping in your entire career that you also watch out for people whom you can trust and seek advice from. And, with that, I mean not only the research community um, in terms of expertise for a certain scientific question, but also for making choices if you are in a, uh, a crossroad situation where you have to make a choice either this way, that way, and, and your moral inner compass or whatever, your knowledge at the time doesn't tell you clearly which way to go. It is very, very important to have and... Uh, be able to rely upon certain people whom you can ask for advice. I have such people here at Scripps, um, and it doesn't take long sometimes to get that advice. I had a very, very important uh, um, support once in a situation that was very difficult for me to make for a decision, and I had, I would say, that conversation with that person who, who, whom I deeply trust, I must say, whom I really deeply trust. Um, I had maybe 10 minutes uh, of a conversation with that person, f I would say five minutes, where I laid out my problem. And here's the communication part. You have to be, when you go into a conversation like that, try to be absolutely clear as to what you want to ask, or at least that the person has a chance to read you and find what you need. And then I had another five minutes where that person gave me the advice that I needed. And that was, you know, the, and that is the, the beauty of, and that's the importance also of trying to find people who, you know, whom you can trust and who, who can give you advice that's so poignant that it helps you immediately. Um, so that person gave me five minutes worth of advice and then offered to check back on me after I had implemented or at least partly implemented. And that was super important to me 
to have that. So I partly implemented, did my check back with that person. Person gave me the okay. I went, boom, I've never regret what I did. So, I mean, don't feel you're out there by yourself, but check very carefully for people within your physical environment, really, if you can. Or even later on, maybe it will be your distant environment, but your, mentor, your mentors, your, um, your academic family is a strong-knit group, usually. Um, and you will find individuals there that you can come back with career questions, with any kind of question in, in your life, and they are willing to help you to the best of their knowledge. I think it's very important. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. This podcast was written and produced by Adam Greenfield. The executive producer of this podcast is Patrick Yurek. The Great Communicators, the Great Communicators podcast, Grad Comics Live, Grad Comics The Game, and the Technically Speaking comic book series are part of a professional development initiative called GradX. GradX is made possible by the Office of Graduate Education at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. To find out more, find about, out more about GradX, as well as get access to other episodes of the Great Communicators podcast, go to gradx.mit.edu. For more information, and, For more links, information on and links on the music used in this episode, please see the show notes.